Alright, well, we're starting in Matthew chapter 8 this week. It's uh, good to be back after a week off of having a new baby come into the world. Mm. Alyssa Renee, she's doing well. Last week we talked about Matthew, or not last week, week before, I guess it would be, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. If you look back at your notes, what's something that stands out in your mind about that teaching from that week? Anything in particular? You need to persevere to the end. Amen. Persevere to the end in holiness. Now, I, during that week, we talked about what perseverance is, and now are there people who right now are persevering, who have a chance that they won't persevere until the end? Are there such people? Yes. We talked a lot about the uh, people, you know, commonly called lose your salvation and what that means. You know, lose your salvation, that phrase is not found in the Bible, but departing from the faith. Uh, walking away, falling away, being cut off. Those things are all in the Bible. What was one of the main scripture passages I went to to talk about this teaching? Uh, Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Hebrews 3 has a lot of language in there uh, that shows us that someone actually can depart from the faith. And um, let's just look at that real quick to give a quick review on this. Uh, Hebrews 3.12, I think is where we started. It says, Beware... Brethren. Now, who are these brethren, according to the writer of Hebrews? What else did he call them earlier on in Hebrews? He called them in chapter 3, verse 1, he called them holy brethren. Right? Because some people will go with the Hebrews 3, 12, and says, beware brethren. He's talking about just the Jews, just the Jewish people, not necessarily believers, in that sense, brethren in that sense, but just Jewish people. But we know in chapter 3 and verse 1 it says, Holy brethren. And then early on, earlier on in chapter 2, that Jesus in chapter 2 verse 11, he was not ashamed to call them brethren. So Jesus wasn't ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, so these brethren, who he's saying beware to, he's warning them. This is not some kind of false warning that these things can actually take place. He's actually giving a real warning to them. And what example does he use in Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 1? That what examples are you using to tell us not to walk in? The same example. He's going back to the Old Testament. What happened in the Old Testament? He's saying, don't walk the same way they did. What was it? You remember? They were in the promised land, and, and Moses sent spies to, to spy out the promised land. And what happened when those spies came back? Well, ten gave a bad report. Two gave good reports, right? Two said we should go into the land and take it. And ten said no, and... Who did the people of Israel follow? The ten of the two. The ten. And just like they weren't allowed, that generation was not allowed, 20 and above was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Therefore, don't follow in their example, otherwise you won't be able to enter your promised land, the holy Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's saying don't walk in their example. Today, if you hear his heart, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. Right? Okay, so uh, it'd be good to review this, this doctrine as much as we possibly can. This, this is one of the most dangerous deceptions in our day and age. And I think in the end times, it's going to be this deception of you can't lose your salvation. It's going to make people be lackadaisical about their faith. They have no reason to press on into holiness then. And there's going to be many people in that day, we look at Matthew 7, he'll say, Lord, Lord, and say, I never knew you. But there will also be people we saw in the parable of the virgins who come in and say, Lord, Lord, let us in. He'll say, I do not know you. <coughs> Which means he might have actually known them at some point in time. So it's both and, not either or. Okay, so we have to make sure we have understand this doctrine. There's even people who go so far, who after today, people like Charles Stanley, who go out there and he'll say that if you had a genuine moment of faith in the past, you were genuinely born again, you could become a Muslim, a Satanist, a you know suicide bomber, you're saved no matter what. Very dangerous. Doctrines of demons, the Bible calls this. So we need to be prepared to not only defend the truth, but help those who are caught in these lies to come out of it into the true faith. And I've seen it happen. I get emails, it seems like more and more 
frequency every day. People are coming at him with lies and coming into the truth. But praise the Lord for that. His truth will stand. And there's people out there who are caught in deception who will seek after the truth. And so those are the ones. We don't want to get into these long and drawn arguments. We're going to waste our time. People who really aren't willing to change. But the people who we either prod around for those people who seem to have a teachable spirit, teachable heart, who are willing to change the position and align us up with the Bible. What the Bible says about this issue. Okay, let's get into Matthew chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 17. So let's go ahead and read what that says. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one. But go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. He said to those who followed, Assertively I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they were brought to, they were brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So we see in verse 1, we see multitudes following Jesus. So we have here, we have the first megachurch ever recorded in Scripture. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the megachurch theme, it's this, these big churches have thousands, the Holstein church, probably 30,000 people come to it every Sunday. They have this big ex-basketball arena that they use. I think they have two or three services every Sunday. People come to this and there's a lot, you know, it's called a megachurch. So Jesus had his first megachurch here. Multitudes following him. Even the, at one point where he was feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. Now if we add one woman for every man, that's 5,000 plus 5,000, 10,000. Let's just say it's two children for every man and woman. That's 20,000 people that he fed in the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. So he had about maybe 20,000 people following him. But see, Jesus wasn't so interested in how many people were following him. He was more interested in the type of person who was following him. And if you go to what happened right after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, you'll see that he spoke some hard words to them. And what did they do? Most of them depart from him. They said, they're not going to follow him anymore. So Jesus wasn't so concerned about how many people were following him, like the modern-day American church does, he was concerned about the type of person following him. That even when he gave hard teachings, like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part in my kingdom. That even though they're like, well, I don't really understand what that means, Lord, but you're my Lord, I'm going to follow you no matter what. <coughs> he wanted people to follow him no matter what he said to them, no matter how hard the teaching was to receive, that they trusted him implicitly, and they're going to follow him no matter the cost. The problem with the American version of the megachurch is there's not people like that. It doesn't produce people who are willing to follow Jesus Christ no matter the cost. Now, we went through Matthew 7, 13 to 14 recently, and how many are going to go into the narrow gate? Few. And how many are going to the broad gate? Many. So we want many. We want as many people to come to the truth, make people to become Christians as possible, disciples of Christ and follow him with their whole hearts. But according to Jesus, there's probably only going to be few. Now, different times in history, you might have more than other times in history. 
Day of Pentecost, 3,000 got saved. Those things can happen. And we'll give all the glory to God when they do happen. But our concern as Christians should not be this American mindset of, you know, the American dream. You know, more is better. Not necessarily true. In fact, in God's scheme of things, maybe less is better. You know, if, if you have lots of true disciples, then praise the Lord. Having too many is a good problem to have. As long as they're really seeking the Lord and following Him, going deeper in their relationship with Him. That's what we want. That's what Jesus wanted. And we, we can tell because He was willing to say these things that He knew people would be like, man, I can't take that. And they walked away. So we have this megachurch, but it didn't stay that way. And Jesus told them the truth. In fact, these are the people who just heard the Sermon on the Mount. So he wasn't willing to hold back from them. He wasn't he, his, his motive wasn't, oh, I might lose them. So I'm not going to say hard things to them. Now, we shouldn't say hard things just to say hard things. But if the truth, if someone needs it told to them in a hard manner, then he did be told that. So we have this first megachurch. And we see what Jesus did later on in John chapter 6. You want to read it for yourself. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now there's this teaching going around in Christian circles that says, if you are sick and you want to be healed, and you pray for healing, but you're not healed, then it's one of two problems. Either you lack faith or there's some sin in your life. Okay? So this teaching going around Christian circles that says, if you have a sickness and you want to be healed and you ask God to heal you, there's only two reasons why he wouldn't heal you. One is because you, don't have, you lack faith, and two is because you have sin in your life. Now what we have here is a leper saying, Lord, if you are willing, if it's a conditional thing, so the chance that he knew in his mind, maybe Jesus wouldn't be willing to heal me. And then we see Jesus correct him and say, what are you talking about if I'm willing? You ask for it. Do you have faith? Do you have sin in your life? Well, I'm going to heal you if those things, those two... Those two things meet there. So there's not always, those, those two things aren't always the problem. They can be the problem. They're not always the problem. Maybe the Lord isn't willing. There's a guy I know right now. John knows to do his name. And he's got cancer. And I just found out recently, I went to his Facebook page, it's, it's spread to his brain. And he's probably not going to have much longer to live. I don't know what the details are, but I looked at his picture of what he looked like in his Facebook profile, probably about a year ago, and it looks like now, it just looks like age 20 years. And um, maybe the Lord's not willing to heal him. Maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe it's God's will to take his life at this time. We don't know the answer to that. But the point I'm making here is this leper said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, there's two things here. <coughs> One, the Lord has to be willing. And two, he admits he has the power to heal me. So we must come to the Lord in these situations where we don't know exactly what the Lord's will is. We put it in His hands and say, if you're willing. That's why it must be our heart in situations that we have that kind of uh, humility and uh, servant's heart. Whatever you want, God. Whatever you want to give me. Naked I came from a Muslim, naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, Job said. We're willing to receive it from the Lord. So the Lord didn't correct him there. Which tells me that these teachings, this it's called the prosperity gospel, the word faith movement, the healing movement supposedly, they're teaching these things are not biblical. If it's such an important point that God is always willing to heal no matter what, Jesus would have corrected him here. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. But Jesus put out his hand, and he touched him. Jesus was willing to touch the untouchable. Lepers were put out into cities where they weren't allowed to be with anyone else. But Jesus was willing to touch the untouchable. We have to examine our own hearts. Are we willing to do that? Or do we look upon them with disgust and say, get away from me, I don't want anything to do with you. So we must be willing to, to touch the untouchable. We must use wisdom as well. We must be willing to touch the untouchable. And Jesus said, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now he said, See that you tell no one. Now if we go to the account of, in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, I think it's the same situation here. 
in Luke 5, 12 to 15, we'll see that he went and told somebody anyway. Uh, so he didn't really obey Jesus, unfortunately. Um, and Jesus had a reason for him not telling anyone. I don't know exactly what those reasons were, but he told him not to tell anybody. Now, he had to go to the, the priest and show himself that he was clean and offer the gift that Moses commanded. And you could, if you want to read up on that, go to Leviticus 13 and 14. Those are the chapters of sin. And that'll tell you all about leprosy, uh, what the laws were that God gave him concerning leprosy. And chapter 14 of Leviticus tells you what they must do if they do become cleansed. Now, if someone became cleansed of leprosy, it was considered a miracle. They had to, I mean, they had no natural method of curing with this. They considered it a miracle from God. And there's a whole process they have to go through once this does happen to prove that it is a miracle from God. They actually are cleansed of it. So I'm not going to go into details of that. It's just a lot of stuff that really doesn't apply to us at this point in time, but you can read about that in Leviticus 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, the centurion came, centurion came to him pleading with him. Now, this, this says a centurion came to him, but I want to look at what sense did a centurion come to him. And the reason I'm saying that is because we go to the Luke chapter 7 passage. We'll do that here in a second. It tells a little bit different of the story. So these, the, the good thing about having Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all have a lot of the same things in it, they help to clarify and give extra details about what exactly happened. So let's go to Luke chapter 7. We read the, the, what happened here in Matthew 18, 5 through 13. Let's look at Luke chapter 7 and see what it says. And I think Luke gives us some added details to in what sense the centurion came to Jesus. Okay? So Luke 7, and we'll start in verse 1. Now, he when, he, when, he concluded, Jesus, when Jesus had concluded all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant was, who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, Centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should, that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, do not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. And he has the same thing. And it says in verse 10, And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. So in what sense did, did the centurion originally come to him? And you see it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, or 8, verse 5. It says, Centurion came to him pleading with him. Who did he plead with him through? Who were the actual people who came to Jesus on the centurion's behalf and pled with Jesus directly? <coughs> The elders of the Jews, whom the centurion sent. Okay? And it says in verse 7 of Matthew 8, And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And, it, and who did he say that to? According to Luke 7. The elders of the Jews. He decided to go with them. And then in Luke chapter 7 it says, When he was not far from the house, Then the centurion must have taken wind, must have heard from someone. Maybe one of the elders of the Jews went ahead of him and told him, or maybe he was coming close to the house and they saw them coming and he sent a servant out to them. But he did not want him to come to the house. He didn't feel worthy to have Jesus come to the house. So he sent another servant out and said, Lord, don't come to my house. Just say the word. I know he'll be healed. So when Jesus replied in Matthew 7, it wasn't if the, the, the centurion was right there and was saying these things to him. And he said to the centurion directly, I will come and heal him. The centurion said back directly, uh, don't come to my house. It wasn't a face-to-face -face encounter. He sent the elders of the Jews first, and they pled with Jesus. Jesus said, I will come. They started walking along the way. We don't know how far he was from the centurion's house, but he was a little far away off, according to Luke chapter 7. And then he sent another servant to him and said, listen, my, 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 my master says, don't even come. Just say the word and he'll be healed. So that's what we see going on here. So we, we see the same, the same situation in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes in John as well. Although John has much material just, just for John, that you don't see in anything else. 
like raising Lazarus from the dead. You don't see that in anything else. But almost all of John is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We can kind of we can look at it and get extra details about what happened and get a uh, another person's accounting of it. So we see more details that way. So he said, don't come under my roof, speak a word, and, and go. Now, I was in the Army. I wasn't for very long. John was in the Navy for 20 years. And you know you have authority, and people trust you as a leader. When you tell them, go do something, they just go do it. They don't question what you say. They just go and do it. And Jesus, when he, when he heard that the centurion said this, he marveled. He said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now, here we have Israel, God's chosen nation. So all the miracle signs and wonders in the Old Testament had all those prophets, have the word of God, have the law of God, have the Shekinah glory on the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. They have all these things, and yet he still doesn't find that kind of faith even in Israel. The centurion, who doesn't have all that background, doesn't have all that stuff, he, he finds greater faith in him than in all of Israel. Now, Israel, I'll tell you, <coughs> Israelites who heard this, they probably would have been insulted. They probably would have been insulted. Because here a Gentile, who's considered dirty, unclean <coughs> to the Jews, had more faith in Jesus' eyes than an Israelite. So it takes a lot of faith to say, Lord, I know you're the supreme authority in life. That this disease, this disease, this, this sickness my servant has, that he's dreadfully tormented, he's about to die, according to Luke seven. Uh, you know, I know you can, I know you can touch him. You, know, you just say the word, and uh, it, it kind of brings us back to Genesis chapter one. What happened in Genesis one when God was creating? He spoke it, and it happened. And even the word universe, universe, una single verse spoken sentence. The universe is a single spoken sentence. We live in a single spoken sentence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God didn't use his hands. He spoke it, and it happened. And this man had the faith that Jesus could do the very same thing. And yet, what's, and yet if we were to go to Matthew 8, 23-27, we'll see even his disciples didn't have this kind of faith. It says, when Jesus got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Jesus was sleeping in the boat. You know, waves, seas, come into the boat. They're about to sink. Lord, save us. We're perishing, he says in verse 25. He said, then why are you fearful, you of little faith? I can imagine the centurion being in the boat with them and saying, eh, I'm going to take a nap too. You know, Jesus is taking a nap. Why should I take a nap? He's in control. If he's resting and relaxing and think it's no big deal, he wins the waves are upon us, why should I think it's a big deal? See, even disciples didn't have the kind of faith the centurion had. He said, why are you so fearful? You have little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. And so the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So the disciples, they even had this, this Israelite thinking that they didn't understand. After everything they had their, their descendants had been through, they still didn't understand how powerful God was, and they had no reason to fear, no reason to worry, that God knew what he was doing. So it should be, it should bring shame upon the Israelites. It should bring shame upon Christians if a, if a non-Christian has more faith in God than we do. Or someone who wasn't raised in the Christian faith has more faith in God than we do. That's mostly for the younger people there. So I think for us older, to the parents, we weren't raised in the Christian faith. But you younger children, you know, when you, you're raised in the Christian faith, as someone who wasn't raised in the faith has stronger faith than you do, there's, something, there's probably something wrong. Because you're not submitting yourself to the truth, the faith that you've been taught, you've been, been given by your parents and whoever else has ministered to you in your life. So I had not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then he goes on to say, given this, this issue between the Jews and Gentiles here, something that Paul dealt with all the time in his ministry. And he goes into it, he says in verse 11, he says, And I say to you that many will come from east and west. And who are those? They're coming from the east and from the west. Those are Gentiles. The Jews are already there in Jerusalem. 
He said, he said they, they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So these Gentiles, they will come from the east and west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now who are they? They're the fathers of the Jewish faith. <coughs> We're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews would say. And the Jews, for some reason, have this mindset that because we're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, descendant children, we deserve this kingdom. We deserve to be part of this kingdom that's coming, called the kingdom of heaven. And he says, he goes on to say in verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, we see the same thing in Luke chapter 13, and we've actually looked at Luke 13 a couple times already. Uh, in Luke 13, and we'll start in verse uh, 22, and I want you to focus on the language that Jesus is using here. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. It's Luke 13, 22. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter the narrow gate, for many I say to you will seek to enter and will not be able. But once the master of the house has risen up, and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to, to you, I do not know you, or where you are from. And then you begin to say, now listen to what they're saying here, and tell me who's saying this. We ate and drank in your presence, and you talked in our streets. Whose streets did Jesus teach in? Teach in? The Jewish streets. He was sent to the sheep of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus wasn't sent to the Gentiles. He was sent to the sheep of, he, of Israel. He said, we ate and drank in your presence and we taught in your streets. And he said, but I, he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you're from, depart from me, all your works of iniquity. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom and yourselves thrust out. Yourselves who? Those who ate and drank in his presence and heard him taught in their streets. They'll come from the east and west, from the north and the south. He just adds, adds north and south here in this, this account of it. And sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are the last who will be first, and the first will be last. The first of the Jews, the last of the Gentiles. There's another parable, if we go back into it, where it talks about how the workers come into the vineyard later on and get the same inheritance that the earlier workers get. And their earlier workers grumble and complain, why are they getting the same inheritance we're getting? They've only worked for a couple hours, we've worked for five hours. <coughs> and so these Jews are having a problem, he's trying to reach them. He's trying to wake them up. And telling them that these Gentiles are going to enter before him should jar them a little bit. That this kingdom that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to sit down at, they're not going to be a part of it. Even though they are descendants from them. Even though they were taught the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's go to Matthew 22. I want to read a couple of parables there too that really are good for this. Matthew 21, and we'll start in Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine precedent, and built a tower. Those are Jews right there. He planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, protected it, gave it a wine press, built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dresser and went to a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers, that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stole another. Sound like the prophets. Sound like the prophets of the Old Testament. Or even John the Baptist. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and did not like and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They don't respect my son. Come on. I mean, my servants, maybe they killed them, stoned them, and beat them, but they'll respect my son. But when the vineyards saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. But so took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine rushers? Now listen to the answers from the Jews. They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine rushers who will render to him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected the stone Jesus, the builders of the Jews, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls in the stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Oh, they caught on. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. And then you have the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. Keep going. We'll go to verse 14 here. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out a servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Let's say not able to come. Not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, fatted cattle are killed, and all the things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. Let me just stop right this for a second. If you ever find yourself becoming apathetic or indifferent to the gospel or to the words of the Bible, you're in a dangerous place. Dangerous place. And this can happen very easily to people who hear the, the gospel, hear the Bible over and over again, but never submit to it. I don't need to become a Christian. I've got plenty of time. They, just, it, they become dull after a time. Apathetic. Indifferent. Oh, it's, I've heard that many times. I've heard it a thousand times. Nothing new there. <coughs> become apathetic and different. It's a dangerous thing to be in. Verse 6. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murders, and burned up their city. That's a prophecy right there. AD 70. What happened? That city was destroyed. God was angry with the Jews. And he destroyed them utterly. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. They were not worthy. Now what made them not worthy? They weren't willing to receive it. They were not willing, it says in verse 3. It wasn't Jesus or God determining eternity past, you're not worthy, you are worthy. You're not worthy, you are worthy. You're not worthy, you're not worthy. They were not willing. What makes you worthy part of the, the wedding feast, to be a part of the supper of the Lamb? You must choose. You must choose. And then God makes you worthy by washing you in the blood of the Lamb. And then you are worthy to be one of His servants. But you must come. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, and invite to the way. So they went to the Jews first. The Jews rejected. Who did they go to? The Gentiles. Everybody else. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him to the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And the word chosen there, we talked about this quite a bit in our, our tulip series, does not mean that God chose him eternity past. The Greek word for chosen here, if you look at the Septuagint, the Old Testament version of the Greek, it's translated as choice, precious in God's sight. It can even be translated as worthy or fit for it. So it could be also said here, many are called, but few fit for it. Few worthy. And it says back in verse uh, verse, six, verse 8, I mean, they were not worthy. It's not talking about God choosing for them. It's not the God, everyone would be saved. But few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. So God is calling, but not all who are called are going to come. Because they don't consider themselves worthy. They're apathetic. They're indifferent towards the gospel. And they went their own way. So Jesus said, okay. God said, okay, you don't want it? I'll give it to someone else. A nation bearing the fruits of it. And it says in the other parable we read. So Jesus is constantly getting on the Jews about these issues. They are the sons of the kingdom. And they'll be cast out. And they'll go to weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness. Now what? Can you imagine someone weeping and gnashing their teeth? What do you imagine happening to that person as they're weeping and gnashing? They're in pain. Regret. Regret. Sorrow. 
So it says outer darkness here. And we're talking about hell here. This, this language, outer darkness, is used many times. Used in Matthew uh, 13.42, used in Matthew 13.50, Matthew 22.23. It's all throughout Matthew and then Luke 13. It's always talking about hell. And then we have this issue of, you have flames there, but it's also outer darkness. So, well, is, this, is it a literal outer darkness? Is it literal flames? Well, you know what? I don't know. But I'm going to tell you this. That whatever hell is, you don't want to be there. And whether it's literally dark there, I, I, I really tend to think that outer darkness means you're going to be by yourself. That's what I think it means. And the flames are going to be literal flames. And you'll have a glorified body, just like Christians will have a glorified body. Sinners will have a glorified body. They'll be resurrected, but they'll go to everlasting destruction. So like that doesn't really make sense in, in our American definition of destruction. You destroy something, it ceases to exist, right? How can you destroy something for everlasting? Hell's a whole new place. Different from anything in this world. And no matter what it is, whether it's literal flames, literal darkness, metaphorical flames, metaphorical darkness, it's the worst place you can imagine. That's all I know. And while we shouldn't come to Christ just to escape some flames, just to escape some pain, it's some good initial motivation, isn't it? For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. According to 1 John 4, a perfect love casts out all fear. And we love Him because He first loved us. So it's the beginning. But it must not be the, the ultimate motive for coming to Christ, of course, is because you love him, because he first loves you. But Jesus preached on hell for a reason. Jesus used fear for a reason. And using fear tactics is biblical and okay as long as it's, pr it's promoting eternal life preservation. Just like in our day and age, people use fear tactics all the time to promote regular life preservation. You, know, you go to the fire station, they'll give you lots of tips. And the reason for the tips is so you won't have your house burned down. So you won't die in a fire. You know, back in when I was in the, in the 80s, early 90s, some of you guys might remember this, they had these commercial TV, like the crash test dummies. They had a crash dummy in the car, and they crashed the car, and the dummies, went, uh, you know, they showed the, the impact of the dummies, what they went through. And they said, why does a dummy, what, what, goes, what happens to a dummy who doesn't put his seatbelt on? His head goes through the windshield. And then they had this commercial. They had the frying pan. And they had the egg. They said, this is your brain. The egg. Crack. This is your brain on drugs. Sizzle. So they're using fear tactics to get people who are my age to not do drugs. Because what happens to your brain when you do drugs? You fry it. You're burning brain cells. So they were, no, one, no one had any problem with those commercials. The crash test dummy commercial, and, you know, we don't want our children's head going through a windshield, so we're going to put a seatbelt on. You even see it on, on, on their highways, click it or ticket. Now he's, now he's not even using life preservation. Say, listen, do you want to pay some a fine? Do you want your insurance rate to go up? You better click the, the seatbelt. So they're using fear tactics, and no one has any problem with those things. But for some reason, when it comes to eternal life preservation, people on the streets will have a problem with this every time. Using fear. Are you sure I sure am? If I can literally scare the hell out of you, I'll do it. So I don't want you to go there. And it's whatever is in my power to do that. Of course, the ultimate motive for coming to Christ should be the love of God. You love Him because He first loved you. And in verse 13, we see Jesus saying to the centurion through the servant, as you see with the clarification in Luke 7, uh, go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. So this doesn't happen, in not every, it's not every instance that is there a belief required or a faith required for God to heal somebody. Uh, but Jesus required him, he said, listen, if you believe it, so let it be done unto you. That's, that's the normal mode of how Jesus works. If, if you're going to, God's going to do something miraculous in your life. You must have faith. You must believe. Just like we, we, we've read before in the past, when Jesus went to his own town, could he do many miracles? 
Why not? Because of the lack of belief in those people. So it was if the lack of belief in those people was hindering God from doing what he wanted to do. And this is what happens with every person's salvation. You have a lack of belief, God's not going to save you. If you choose not to believe, God will not save you. He requires you to have belief. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. Let's stop right there. A little side note here. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter is the first pope. Okay? Pope is the head of the Catholic Church, considered the vicar or representation of Christ's honor. Popes can't have wives. Does Peter have a wife? I guess he's disqualified then. Uh, his mother was lying sick with a fever, so Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. I'll tell you, when the Lord heals, he heals. She didn't just get up and sit around and try to recover. She got up and waved on them. Now, what do you want, Jesus? You want some coffee? There you go. I don't know if he drink coffee, but I'm just using a modern-day example here. You know, you want a cappuccino? What do you want? You want some carrot juice? Well, I'll put some carrots in a machine for you and cook it up for you real quick. She was willing to serve him. But Jesus heals. He heals to the uttermost. He doesn't leave you half sick. So when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. It may be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 4. And some people who believe that they're a part of this healing movement, where they think, once again, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of chapter 8, that God always wants to heal you, and the atonement... Because Jesus died on the cross, therefore he always wants you to be healed. He never wants you to be sick. That's their kind of belief. And they, they might even use this as a proof text for that. But let's reason this through for a second. This is quoting from Isaiah 53, 4. Had Jesus died on the cross yet? So it's not even referring to his atonement and what it accomplished. Now, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and 24 through 26... One of the benefits of the atonement of Jesus Christ is that death will be defeated. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, or through 27. Uh, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom <coughs> to God the Father. Jesus, the end comes, Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he, put, he who put all things under him is accepted. So that's a little side note on verse 27 about the Trinity there, that the Father is above Son in authority, and everything's under the Father. And not everything under the Son, the Father's above him. But anyway, the point here is that the last enemy defeated will be death. And Christ, what he did on the cross provides a way for death to be defeated. Now, for these people who think that when Christ did on the cross, it provides all the healing we need, and therefore from there on out, he never wants us to be sick, always wants us to be healed, do these people die? So I guess they're not being healed completely. Because each one of us, unless we're around when Christ comes back, we will die. Benny Hinn, all those healing people, all Roberts, yeah, Jan, Jan Kraut, even Smith Wigglesworth, who I think has some good stuff to say. He healed a lot of people. He died. So if we're going to die, that means God does not want. That, by definition, tells us that God does not want us always to be healed. Okay, but what happened with the atonement is it provides a way for the final enemy to be defeated, which is death. And we know in Revelation uh, 20 and verse 14 that death is cast where? The lake of fire. Death and Hades are both cast in the lake of fire. And when we go to Revelation 21 4, we'll see that there's no more, in the kingdom, there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears. So it's then that we'll have our new bodies. It's then that we'll no longer have sickness or pain or tears. But all those things happened as a result of 
what Christ did on the cross. And all people who will take part in that, of course, are those who have trusted in Christ, who have turned from their sins, and who persevere to the end. So what we see here, I think what, what Matthew is saying here, we see here a glimpse of the reality that will come in the future. He's healing these people, but it's not a complete healing because they're going to die someday. So it isn't, isn't even a complete healing for them. It's a healing of whatever the sickness was they had at that point in time, but they're going to die. Even Lazarus, who was risen from the grave, he died again. He died again. So, Isaiah 53, 4, the, the greater healing we see in Isaiah 53 is the spiritual healing. This cleansing of our sins. This purifying of ourselves from our sins. And forgiveness and pardon. But they use this passage, or use Isaiah 53, 4, or any of the verses in Isaiah 53, and say, you know, what Jesus in the cross provides our healing for the here and now, and he never wants to be sick, never wants to have any problems, is not good interpretation of the Bible. So what we see here is a, is a glimpse of the reality that is to come. We're going to die, but there will be a time for those who persevere to the end of the faith that they'll never have to deal with sickness or pain or infirmities ever again. And that did happen as a result of what Christ did on the cross. But nowhere in the Bible will you find, and I think this passage we've just gone through today shows us several times that God is going to heal everyone at all times and he wants no one ever to be sick. We don't see that in the Bible. Okay, we're going to stop there. And we'll continue in Matthew chapter 8 next week and possibly finish it up next week. But now we'll open the uh, open up to questions or comments or anything people want to add. Uh, going back to Leviticus 13 and 14, um, would you consider that to be a messianic uh, prophecy fulfilled? Like him? tells these people to the lepers that he heals to go back to be inspected by the priest and the priest should see that healing and knowing from Leviticus 13 and 14 somebody's here that's healing leprosy is that is that a messianic fulfillment or is it just uh what well, I mean I would say I think all of Jesus' healings whether it's lepers or whatever it may be are trying to show the Jews look I'm here Messiah's here. And, you know, the people who weren't so deceived by their own pride and their own man-made teachings, they saw who Jesus was. <coughs> but they, they said things like, well, who's ever opened the eyes of the blind before? Who, who's ever, you know, some of the things Jesus did had never been done before, even by the prophets of the Old Testament. And so these are all things pointing them out. I don't think this is necessarily a, a fulfillment of prophecy specifically, but I think just him healing people in general He's saying, look, open your eyes, man. Humble yourself. Have childlike faith and see the Messiah is here in front of you. Receive my rebuke that I give you. But I don't think there's any kind of specific prophecy that says the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to heal lepers. But uh, it definitely him healing, it, that, that should tell him something. No doubt. of the fall and sin and right. you see, you know, there's thorns and thistles and things are dying physically and sure. <clears throat> I'm just trying to formulate my question properly here. Right? Uh, if if the fall and God's curse upon the earth has an effect of physical death for all things, mm -hmm. and Christ has come in the atonement and his death and his resurrection now able to and going to make uh, things perfected. Um, when Jesus says, be perfect, this is talking about a completely different issue. Right. One is moral perfection, the other is physical perfection. We won't be completely perfected until we're there. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians. Yes. Right. Uh, Philippians. 
chapter two, I believe. And also in Luke chapter thirteen, Jesus himself says, verse thirty-two, talking to uh, the fox, um, he said to him, "Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected." And uh, I tell people that, and they say, what do you mean Jesus is perfected? Well, obviously he was perfect. He didn't sin morally, but he wasn't physically perfected until he is, was resurrected. Right. And we're, you know, so we're all in agreement about that. Right. There's, there's obviously different kinds of perfection in the Bible. And people get confused about what biblical moral perfection is, which means you're obeying the commandments of God. And it teaches that you always have the ability... God's strength to obey every commandment He gives you. That's moral perfection. Physical perfection is something I can't attain. God must give it to me. I'm going to die. Even if I went to the gym seven days a week and was buff and had muscles all over my body, that still would be because I'm going to die someday. That still would not be physical perfection. So when Paul is mentioned in Philippians 3.12, I've not already attained it by pressing on toward the goal. He's talking about the resurrection. Very clear from the context there. He's talking about resurrection. So we, when, when the word perfection is used there, and perfection can be maturity, can be completion. Uh, we have to look at the context to determine what kind of perfection is talking about. We can't just, every time we see perfection, think that it's physical perfection. Every time we see perfection, it's talking about moral perfection. We have to look at the context and see what it's saying. Uh, so yeah, the last enemy is destroyed, and then everyone will have a body, a glorified body, that will never physically die again. Everyone, even those in hell, will have a physically perfect body that will never die. And that's what I think enables them to be able to be destroyed for all eternity is as Thessalonians says, and to have everlasting destruction, and to be eternal fire, and to be in outer darkness forever and ever, because they have this body that God will not let die. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to make a comment about the uh, about the fire and outer darkness right. concept. I mean, even in the natural here now, we have fire that we can't see. Right. There's fire that's, you know, fuels that are so pure, uh, high octane uh, racing fuel. Right. When that catches on fire, it's so pure it's so high octane that it's invisible. And so God could cast us into outer <coughs> darkness. It could very well mean what you were saying, that you're just alone. Right. And I think that that'll be apparent to everybody that's there. But at the same time, it could be this actual no illumination, complete darkness, and yet flames are consuming them, but not being consumed. Right. You're consuming them in torture. Well, right. And thus they're not able to sin. I don't believe people are able to sin. You know, curse God's name even if they're gnashing their teeth. They can't. How can you have a thought of any kind of sin when you're in pain? When you're in pain, you're just consumed with pain. You're all part of you is. I mean, I'm talking about severe pain now, a bad burn or a, a, a break. Your only thoughts are on that pain. Yeah. Now here in this natural body, sometimes people will you know, cry out and curse God or seek God, save me in the pain. But there, I think the thing will be so uh, horrendous and so complete that it'll be nothing but the focus and the pain and the gloom of it all, you know, that, that you couldn't possibly sin in that place. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I don't think it matters either way. Right. Because they're in hell no matter what, um, right. whether they're sinning or not. Uh, they've, they've, they sealed their fate by dying in their sins, not trusting in Christ. Uh, you know, whether they just uh, outward rejected it or just or apathetic or indifferent towards it. It's all rejection. Yeah, it's an unclean place, right? So, obviously, it's, <coughs> it's not pure. It's a place where the sin is known. So. So. I, I had a question about the, the um, healing thing. In Third John, um, verse two, it says, "Beloved, I pray that you may be, you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers." Right. What would, what do you think about that? That's through Third John. Yeah, Third John chapter two. To be that the Lord does desire at other areas. I, you know, we're, we've been kind of looking at this, you know, because of cancer. Sure. That. See other areas where the Lord does desire us to be in health, mm -hmm. um, our body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and to be destroyed over that, and mm -hmm. those who destroy the temple. Right. You know, talks about that with one on that. And 
Um, but I've heard this verse used, like like you said, in a lot of the false teachers. Right. They'll use the, that is, by his stripes we are healed, I'm not supposed to be sick or damn anybody. Right. And this verse I've heard it used in a wrong, in a wrong way, too. Have you, have you heard that also? No, I've never yeah. heard that one used before. No. And uh, I, don't, I don't read, I haven't read, I haven't read Third John in a while, actually. Mm-hmm. It's not a very uh, talked about book of the Bible. Um, but it's, it seems to put a, a, a distinction between the body, um, the soul, and that you gain health uh, even as your soul prospers. You know, we're prospering in the Lord uh, spiritually. Right. We're growing. Um, the outer man's decaying, but the inner man's being renewed. Yep. Um, that we're kind of look, even looking at the, you know, God's concerned with our, the whole man, that we might be complete in Him. Right. And as the Gnostics that separate the body, Right? right, from from the spirit, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Right, the body's evil. Right, but it seems like the Lord does desire us to be to be healthy, sure, as much as we as much as we can. Right, but with knowing that the ultimate goal is that we have a new body. Right, we are. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna no matter how healthy we are, we're still gonna die. Yeah, so we're gonna lose our health <laughs> at some point in time. And that by any means trying to dissuade people from being healthy or living healthy lives or eating healthy exercise <coughs> like that. I'm just simply pointing out that this, this theology that says that God never wants you to be sick is wrong. Right. God, I mean, even when the, the man who was blind from birth, disciples asked him, why was he blind from birth? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? He said it was for the glory of God. So God has reasons for sickness at times. Yes. Uh, yes. But me, I mean, if I say to John, John, I hope you have a, you know, you're in good health now. I hope you stay in good health. Well, just because I'm saying, does that mean that God does not have some other different plan for him to, uh, as, as a general rule, I want everyone to be in good health. Yeah. But if the Lord wants something else, I, I, I can't, you know, it's his job to decide those things. I don't know the mind of the Lord when it comes to those things. That's true. That's probably what it's saying is in that context. Right. Be like, oh, you know, I pray that you'd be in good health, right. be strong, right. serve the Lord. Yeah. You, you might have strength to, to, to do what the Lord wants you to do and be in good health. That's probably, probably what it's referring to. And, you know, that, that I mean... We think of things, we think, well, God, you know, why would you let me be sick? Because if I'm healthy, I can do more things for you. You know, if I'm healthy, Lord, I can go out and, and preach the gospel. You know, if someone has, has brain cancer, they can't do much. They're staying at home most of the time. I mean, I think he, the guy was talking about even fell down a couple times. So you can't really do much when those things are, are happening in your body. And, you know, you might pray to the Lord, you know, why won't you heal me? I can go out and do better things. But maybe he has something else going on there. And let's face it. Unless we're here when Christ comes back, it's going to happen to all of us at some point in time. Everybody. I mean, Leonard Ravenhill says that John Wesley, that the people, when he was in the ministry training up preachers, the average age of ministry they died was about 32 years old, people who he was training. And he lived to be like, in the, I think, 60s or 70s. You know, so even he, when he went full blast at all times, even he died at some point in time. You know, so we're all going to die. This, this body's going to perish. And um, so that's, that's the problem. Point, but I'm not trying to anyway dissuade uh, people from living he- being healthy. But I will point out this, brother, that you know when it says that our body is temple of the Holy Spirit, that's in 1 Corinthians 6, and what it's referring to there is not talking about your physical body. It says in verse 18, flee from sexual morality. Every sin that a man does out- is outside the body, but he who commits sexual morality sins against his own body. And then it says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were for your body to price it for glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God. So what I'm trying to say is that when I don't think we can use this, you know, your temple of the Holy Spirit to say that's why we should be eating better and exercising better. I think the argument for that is that God's given us our body, period. Whether you're a temple of the Holy Spirit or not, God's given your you your body to be a steward over it. But when the Bible every time the Bible says you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, it's referring to sins, actual sins you commit, and not committing those things because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the reason I want to stay healthy and be in good health and eat well is because God's given my body, period. And I want to treat it right, not just because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. That's why I want to not sin. Yeah, so that, that's the little distinction I would make there. It's not a real big distinction because you still should, have, you still should be healthy and be in good health treat your body right and, and, and live according to the knowledge you have and of course don't stay in willful ignorance just so you can eat what you want to eat and live the way you want to live the Holy Spirit thing, yeah. right um, in that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 6 he does talk about 
All things are lawful for me. Right. All things are not helpful. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. God will destroy both of them. Right. And, <coughs> and then he said, talk about foods. Then he talks about now the body is not for sexual immorality, but right. for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Yeah, so Romans 6, your body is an instrument for righteousness or unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I wouldn't use that argument to say we should eat healthy and, and live healthy because I don't think it applies in context. I would simply say that God's given us our body to be stewards of it, period. It's a vessel to be used. And, uh, you know, we need to do all within our power to keep ourselves healthy. And uh, then take what the Lord gives us. But don't make it a God. Yeah, you know, don't make it a God either. People, people become so obsessed with it. Yeah, so obsessed with it. Even those who are on diets, you know, I see people do this P90X stuff, and they just become so obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. It's like they forget about their Christianity. And they'll do videos for it, and they become a representative for it, and they're dressing immodestly now, because the women who do it, they get their body looks better now, and they want to dress immodestly and show it off. You know, it just becomes too much. And they compromise. Right. Right. And they compromise, and, they, and ultimately their body, like Pam said, becomes an idol to them. And now God's no longer their God, their bodies are God. And so there's, there's a happy meeting to get there. You know, we need to make sure our heart is right and our motivation is right in it. And, um, you know, and go from there. One, one verse I would add, and this is a verse I always add for people who are going through a, a, a loss of a loved one. Psalm 116, 15, and that God delights in the death of the saints. Right. So that when I die, and it's going to happen, you know, I'm older than most here, and, and so that I know some point in the future, no matter how well I eat, how well I take care of my body, and I want to do those things, I'm going to the fire. Right. I want my children, my wife to be prepared for that day, right. and know that God delights when we die and we pass from this place into uh, paradise. And I, I look forward to that. I love my family. I want to be with them. At the same time, I want to be with the Lord. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a good balance there, I think some kind of morbid uh, thing that I'm always dwelling on that because there's things I think the Lord has us here for and we can pursue all that with uh, you know, his will in our lives with all of our strength and mind and, yeah. Yeah. yeah it can become a distraction dealing with your physical uh, body and letting it become an idol it can become a distraction sometimes from doing what the Lord wants you to do and I, I think a lot of times when it comes to that even people want a quick fix they realize they're not in good health, so they'll go on some kind of diet and want a quick fix right away, and it doesn't happen that way easily. If it gets a quick fix, usually you go right back to the way you were. Well, that's that's man's that's really man's way. Yeah, the change of lifestyle. That's the world's really. way. The world. That's that's the you look at the physical and they parallel the spiritual. In the physical um, realm, people want to go to the physicians. They want to get their pill. They want to get the, the, the magic pill, right. the quick fix that doesn't require any effort. Just burn it out, just you know, right. just and uh, give me the magic pill instead of uh, a change, making a change, lifestyle change, a lifestyle change, right. and repenting of the things that you're doing that are wrong, right. that are killing you, right. and doing the right things. Right. And I see it the same with the physical, you know, people that are you know have certain physical problems that maybe they're not a victim. It's because they've been doing certain things that yeah. are bad, yeah. and they want the pill to magically fix them. Right. Same thing spiritually. People right. don't want to turn from sin. They don't want to discipline themselves, change, beat their discipline bodies. themselves, and start going the right way because right. they have to get rid of this thing that they're doing that are bad and start doing the good things. Right. You know, so I, that's I see that they kind of run parallel. Yeah, if you can become disciplined in one, it really helps with the other one. <coughs> if you can be disciplined spiritually, it's going to really help you to have self control. In both areas, either area is going to help in the other area. Yeah, yeah. It really will. Mm-hmm. So they, they do go along, along together quite a bit. So it just. Uh, I, I testify to that because I think I might have tried to fast before the Lord, you know, but now this last week I did this like liver cleanse and it required three days of fasting. And I had never in my life fasted that many days, right. even with the Lord, right. you know, but just with the Lord one day or a meal or, you know, here and there kind of thing, but never that long. And I just would pray to the Lord for strength. And there was a time that came where I wasn't even hungry after like the second day or midway through the second day. I wasn't even hungry anymore. And I know that the Lord 
even though I was fasting not only for the Lord, the Lord came alongside of that because His Spirit gives yeah. us self-control, you know, and helps me to make it through. Yeah, that's my testimony because of fasting too. The first day is usually a little rough. Yeah. The second day, as you continue to persevere and strengthen yourself in the Lord and read the Word and pray, you really, it just becomes, doesn't even, you don't even think about it anymore. Yeah. It just goes away and you're just focusing on Him. Beautiful. Because you're really, you know, taking your thing off the things of the world and focusing on the spiritual things. Yeah. And he really just, He fills your stomach, I think, even times it seems like yeah. to me. So. Yeah. It encouraged me to do that more. Yeah, that's what I think.